this morning, um, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter four, verse 25, Romans chapter four, verse 25, as Char already read, uh, for us, um, from a larger section. And in that passage at the, at the end of that verse, Paul makes the statement that Christ was raised for our justification, that he was raised for our justification, which might immediately um, for us seem like a bit of an odd statement to make. What does the resurrection have to do with our salvation? We typically think of our justification and our um, salvation as something that Christ accomplished on the cross, uh, paying our sin, removing that guilt, and and uh, therefore we can stand before God as as no longer condemned because Christ bore that for us. But the question is, as we come together on Easter and what we call Resurrection Sunday, what does the resurrection have to do with our salvation? Is it merely sort of an afterthought? Is it merely sort of the result of Jesus's death? That the, that the bondage of, of death has been released and it shows that the cross was successful? Or is it that, but more? What does, the, what does the resurrection actually contribute to our salvation? And Paul suggests that it contributes something. And so this morning, that's what we want to look at, is what does the, what, how does Christ's resurrection actually accomplish our justification? And as we think about the book of Romans, and as we're in chapter 4, I hope you have a Bible and you can turn there with me. In chapter 4, Paul talks about this, ju- this justification. He, justification is a word um, that comes from sort of the legal sphere. It conjures up ideas of a courtroom, of a judgment being made. To be justified is actually a legal verdict. It is to be declared just, as opposed to being clear, declared guilty and condemned. It is to be seen in the eyes of the court, and in this case, the eyes of God, who is the ultimate judge and who will judge us. It is to be declared by God, you are righteous. You have done what is righteous, as opposed to what is wrong. You are guiltless. And Paul describes it in chapter 4, beginning chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. He says, what shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. This this language of justification, he sort of equates with being counted righteous or having righteousness credited to him. And he says that it's by faith, it's not by works. In verses 4 through 5, he talks about it as not something that is a wage, like something that we earn, but as a gift. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as is due. If someone works, it's considered what they get for that is considered earning. But if justification is by faith, then it's a gift. It's something given to us. It's not something earned. Verse 5, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. That this justification that Paul has in view here is even for the ungodly. That that seems to be a contradiction in term, terms. Don't let that pass you by. Justification is to be, said, to be said to be righteous. And yet Paul is saying that the justification that we can have is actually something experienced by the ungodly. It's, to be, it's for the unjust to be declared just. 
How can that be? As we understand, it's a justification. It's a righteousness that is not our own then, but a righteousness from outside of ourselves given to us by Christ. And so in verses 6 through 8, Paul will equate justification here with having our sins forgiven and not having our sins counted against us. Verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God accounts righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes the Psalm of David, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. So justification is, is when we stand before a holy God and he doesn't count our sins against us. How glorious of a truth that is. <clears throat> If we think back to the first three chapters of the book of Romans, Paul has outlined for us the need for justification. He talks about the wrath of God being revealed against all unrighteousness. In our, in our, in our, as humanity, in our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth of, of what we know to be true about God. We worship the creation rather than the creator. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. And the problem that that creates for us is that we stand before a God who is immeasurably holy. That as Isaiah was, was, was experienced the vision of, of God in Isaiah chapter 6, and you have angels surrounded, created simply to, to reflect God's holiness and, and, and always cry, holy, holy, holy. It brought Isaiah to the point of saying, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips, I live among a, among a people of unclean lips. The holiness of God, and as we think about the holiness of God towards evil, th- those people that are righteous, we would say, they're not indifferent. They're not indifferent to evil. People who are morally upright are people who care about evil. In fact, we would say they hate evil. They want to see it rid. They want to see it gone. They want to see it punished. And when we think about God, who is, of course, more holy than we can even imagine, more holy than any expression of a human being on earth, the comparison is ludicrous. The holiness of God towards evil is that he absolutely hates it. He has so much goodness in himself that he has incredible indignation and displeasure towards evil. But the problem for us is that God in his goodness, then, is bad news for us and our badness. Because his indignation towards evil includes our own sin. And so as we think about standing before this God on the final judgment, a God who will judge us and hold us accountable for our sin, it's, it's, a, it's a daunting prospect to think, how am I going to stand before him and face his judgment when I have sinned? And that is our need for justification. That is the need to actually be given a right status before God, that God will see us and credit us as righteous before a holy God. And as we come then to chapter 4, Paul in chapter 4 brings up the, the, the person of Abraham as a pattern of this justification by faith then, and not our works, not by the law in how God works out his plan of salvation, that Abraham becomes this pattern for us, which leads us to verse 25, where we see that not only is Abraham credited righteousness on account of his faith, not only is Abraham justified by faith, but those very words spoken to Abraham or spoken about Abraham, that he was justified by faith, are also then true of us who believe, who believe the same promise of Abraham, 
the very fulfillment of those promises made to Abraham. So that when we trust in Christ, who fulfilled the very promises made to Abraham, we, like Abraham, are also justified by faith and not works, not the law. And that brings us to verse 25. And let's go ahead and read verse 25. I'll be flipping um, from slides here occasionally so you can follow along. And you'll have to put up with me. I'm coming down with something, so I may be coughing and sniffling. But in Romans 4, 23 through 25, Paul says this. He says, But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, that is Abraham's, but also for ours. For it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And I want to focus on that first line here initially. Who was delivered up for our trespasses. And you'll notice it's in the passive. He was delivered up. It's something that's occurring to Jesus. And the question is, well, who delivered him up? Who delivered Jesus up? And now on the one hand, this is a word that is often used in the Gospels to refer to the fact that um, Jesus was betrayed and he was handed over. And it also seems that in the context of Romans, this is a word that that is used in Romans for God handing people over to judgment in chapter 1, handing them over to their sins. And so the idea seems to be it's actually God, even as he uses human beings to, to betray and deliver Jesus over, it's actually God himself who hands Jesus over. It's actually God himself who takes the initiative. Jesus wasn't just killed, but Jesus was a sacrifice. From the very plan of God, God had initiated to send Christ to die for our sins. And this language of him him, him being delivered over for our trespasses, our transgressions, or our offenses, this is language that comes from Isaiah, Um, particularly the Greek translation of Isaiah 53 verse 12. And Isaiah 53 is a, is a passage that uh, many of us probably know well. It's the passage of the suffering servant, as we oftentimes say. And you'll notice this language is very similar. He says, because his soul was given over to death, verse 12, and he was reckoned among the lawless, and he himself bore the sins of many, and he was handed over, the same word, because of their wickedness. That Paul seems to be drawing on this passage from Isaiah, and if we understand that passage in Isaiah, it speaks of this servant of the Lord, what we call the suffering servant, but this, this, this figure called the servant of Yahweh, who bears the guilt of his people. The passage talks about how he was crushed for our iniquities, not his own. He was crushed and condemned and bore guilt, but the guilt was not his own. Rather, he was dying in the place of others. He was bearing the guilt of others so that they would be acquitted of those, um, those sins. And if you understand that passage and how it functions in the book of Isaiah, you get this figure that shows up across uh, the last chapters of Isaiah, I, Isaiah chapter 40 onward, of this servant of the Lord. This, this phrase shows up quite a bit, servant of Yahweh, servant of Yahweh. And many times, we typically associate that with the Messiah in Christ, but more often than not, that phrase, servant of Yahweh, is actually a phrase that's, that represents Israel and what Israel was meant to be as a, as a nation people. They were meant to be God's servant and a light to the nations and to display who God was by their peculiar laws and the holiness that they were to embody. And of course, they failed in doing that. 
And by Isaiah describing this suffering figure as the servant of Yahweh, using that phrase that was used for Israel, what he seems to be doing is saying this suffering figure will stand in for Israel. He will represent Israel in his death. He will be their substitute. When he's condemned, he is representing God's people in his death. He is dying for their sins. He is being condemned for us, and he is bearing our guilt. And so that's the first line of what Paul says, that Christ was delivered over to pay for our sins. But not only so, then we come to the second half where Paul says that Christ was raised for our justification, who was delivered up for our trespasses, and the second half here, and was raised for our justification. And one of the things that is interesting that we'll note here is that both of these lines in verse 25 are parallel. So I have that up on the a diagram there for you on the slides. And this is just important to note that we read these, these two clauses similarly, that it's it, who was delivered over, a passive verb, because of or for, and then trespasses and our trespasses, and then you have and was raised up, a passive verb, again, because of or for, and in our justification. In other words, in, in the way in which Christ's death relates to our sins in a similar way, Paul is actually saying that our that Christ's resurrection relates to our justification. As Christ's death relates to our sins, so in a similar way, his resurrection relates to our justification. Paul seems to be saying that Jesus accomplished our justification when he rose from the dead. Now, on the one hand, what we mean by this is, is we, we can say this. This is, this, is part, this is half of the discussion, I think. Is that on the one hand... Jesus' resurrection was the demonstration that what he did on the cross was successful and had been uh, accomplished, that the atonement had been accomplished. So on the one hand, if we, if we think of the, the cross as the delivery of the payment, the resurrection is the demonstration of the payment. The payment was made on the cross, and then this, the, the reception of that payment, the demonstration of that payment, is displayed in the resurrection. Or the cross is the payment, and the resurrection is the proof of payment, if, those are, if that's a helpful way to think about it. You see, because what we're saying here is we're saying that, that the, the death itself was the wages of sin. And so for Christ to identify with our sin and to bear our sin is for him then naturally to die for it. Death being the natural consequence. But if the wages of, the, of, that, of that sin, if the wages of sin are then satisfied and he makes the payment, then, 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 then death itself must be triumphed. If he has fully paid sins, then he also conquers the wages of those sins, which is death. And so having paid for our sins, the natural result is then that he raises from the dead. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, what? We are still in our sins. If Christ hasn't raised from the dead, it would forever cast doubt on whether his cross work actually meant anything at all. Otherwise, he would just be a martyr. 
Death without resurrection is mere martyrdom. It is not atonement. Because atonement means satisfaction, and satisfaction means the conquering of the death that was the very wage of the sin. So R.C. Sproul puts it this way. He says this, he says, Had Jesus died and not been raised from the dead, that would have indicated that his atonement was not acceptable to God. The fact that God raised him, though, demonstrates to the world that God is satisfied with the perfect work of his Son. The resurrection of Jesus is the verdict of the judge of heaven and earth that the atonement has been made and all who trust in Christ will participate in the benefits of the righteousness of Christ. The, the, the resurrection shows that the cross succeeded. As, as another uh, commentator puts it, Christ's resurrection was the proof of our justification as it was the necessary effect of it. Christ's resurrection was the proof of our justification as it was the necessary effect of it. However, that is only one side of the coin. That is only one part of the discussion. I think Paul is saying more than that here. Not merely that the resurrection is sort of the outflow of the cross, but that the resurrection actually accomplishes and contributes to our justification. And the first thing we need to understand here is I try to walk us through, I think, the logic of what Paul is saying here. The first thing we need to understand <clears throat> is that when we talk about justification, justification is an end time category. You see, how the Bible um, and the biblical categories that folks had, what, what, what people would have thought of is they would have thought of the final judgment as something that occurs at the end of history. Eventually, all humanity will be judged. There's a final judgment to come. And when that final judgment comes, there are two possible outcomes. You can either be justified and said to have been righteous. You lived righteously and you, you are just. Or you will be declared condemned. But those are things that will happen ultimately at the end time, at, at the final judgment when God intervenes in history and he judges the righteous, and the wicked. And so when we think of justification, we should think about that as a category that would have been assumed to be something that occurs in the end time. That is an end time verdict. The other piece that I think we need to realize is that the outcome of that judgment according to scripture, as we think about that last judgment, was either that you would be raised to eternal life, you would receive resurrection, or you would receive eternal damnation. So as you are either justified or condemned, those who are justified will be raised to everlasting life and glory, and those who would be condemned would be raised merely to have a resurrection of judgment, to everlasting corruption and condemnation. And so here's the key. As such, resurrection is bound up with justification. To be resurrected is to receive what is an, a judicial act, to receive the verdict that you are just, 
that you are justified and therefore are raised. To be resurrected is to be justified. It is a sign and experience and the consequence of being justified. Resurrection is bound up with justification, and so resurrection itself is a verdict from God of what he declares you to be. And so we see this, the idea of, of resurrection being bound up with that final judgment in passages like Daniel 2. We're in, and so there we see on the diagram, resurrection to life is bound up with justification or associated with it. In Daniel 12, it says, But at that time, at the end, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust, the dead of the earth, shall awake. There will be a resurrection. Some to everlasting life, resurrected, glorious life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And so resurrection is a judgment category. What will your judgment be? Will you be raised to life or will you be raised to everlasting contempt? And Jesus himself shares this perspective as well. <coughs> In John 5, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And God the Father has given the Son authority to execute judgment because he is a son of man, that Christ is one who will, who will issue judgment. And so do not marvel, verse 28, at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who are just, those who are righteous, who will be justified to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil, those who are condemned, those who are guilty to a resurrection of judgment. You see, resurrection is the signal, it is the manifestation, it is the consequence of this end-time judgment. And so as, here's the key then, as Christ himself is raised, Christ's resurrection is his justification. Christ being raised from the dead is Christ undergoing justification. We see this, for example, in 1 Timothy 3.16, where Paul actually says this. He says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then he cites what is this confessional, um, probably a, 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 something that they used in their worship, maybe a hymn or a, a confession of faith. And Paul cites it saying, Jesus was manifested in the flesh. And he was justified. So a lot of our translations say vindicated, but it's actually the word that we use elsewhere for justified. Jesus was justified by the Spirit. And the understanding there is as the Spirit is the one who is associated with raising Jesus from the dead, this is probably referring to Jesus' resurrection. That when Jesus is raised by the Spirit, that is justification. That is him receiving that end-time verdict, that end-time judgment and embodying that end-time judgment of being justified. It is Christ's justification. And so what we see here is, is Christ's death is for Christ to undergo the curse of God, right? We understand this in Galatians 3.13 where, where Paul says that anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed by God. And Christ then, as one who hung on a tree for us, 
that signified that Christ's death was him bearing our curse. Just like Isaiah 53 says, that he bore our guilt. He was, it, it pleased the Lord to crush him. And so at, if you were a bystander, you would just, you would, you could picture it this way. As Christ is hung on a tree, your assumption would be he's cursed by God. As Deuteronomy tells us, the one hung on a tree is cursed by God. And as they laid him in the tomb as one who had died on a tree, your, your impression and your assumption of what Christ was is you would see him as someone condemned by God. But as such, three days later, when that body comes to life again, notice as this passage says, was raised, passive tense. Again, who is raising Jesus? The implication is God the Father is raising Jesus. God the Father then raising Jesus, it's an implication of God's favor towards Christ, that God is actually saying, I am raising you. And as God the Father raises Jesus, it is for Christ to be justified. It is the reversal of that status he had of being condemned as one who died on a cross bearing our guilt. And now that now that, that is actually being reversed and the death is, 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 is being conquered, it is a shift to a status of being justified in the sight of God. For him to be raised is for him to be justified. You see, if death is the embodiment of what it means to be condemned, to, to actually bear the wages of sin, then resurrection is the embodiment of what it means to be in a position of justification. If the cross meant the experience and the removal then of this negative verdict from us, of condemnation, if the cross was that side of the coin, Jesus bearing our guilt, bearing our punishment, bearing our condemnation, and the removal of that negative side, the resurrection is the realization of the positive verdict of Jesus achieving our justification. And you can see that in the diagram as I have there. As, as we think about the end time judgment of, of, of the, these categories of either being condemned or justified, and as in as much as resurrection is associated with those who are justified, this is what we have. In the middle of history, Jesus is undergoing that end-time judgment for us. This, this category of, of, of this final judgment that would occur of being either justified or condemned in Jesus' cross and resurrection, he is already undergoing that final judgment for us. In the cross, he is condemned for us, and in the resurrection, he is justified for us. So that as we are then in Jesus, in as much as we are by faith connected to Jesus and joined to Jesus, we undergo that judgment with him. You see, Jesus Inasmuch as he, as Jesus represents us in his death and experiencing our condemnation, so likewise he represents us in his resurrection, realizing our justification. He died for us and he was raised for us. Inasmuch as we are connected to Jesus, what we speak of as union with Christ, joined to Jesus, we are comprehended in him. We are considered in him so that what is true of Christ is true of us. We have already passed, in other words, through the final judgment. The final judgment has been issued for those who are in Christ because he has already borne that judgment for us. 
And in raising to life and receiving that status, that verdict of justified, signaled in his resurrection, we too are justified in him as the one who is fully obedient and has all the righteousness in himself, the one who obeyed the law perfectly and never sinned. And and God the Father signaling that by raising him from the dead, saying, I favor you, you are righteous, you are justified, I will raise you from the dead. We, when we are joined to him, are seen before the Father as well as having our condemnation removed and in the sight of God, based on what Christ has done cloaking us, we are seen as just. And again, this makes sense when we think about it in light of, in light of what we've already said about Isaiah 53. And if Isaiah 53 is context for understanding this passage, we have a servant of Yahweh who acts representing God's people. He acts representing God's people. And just as Jesus represents us in his death, he represents us also in his resurrection. And that is the point of our message today, which is this that Christ represented us in his resurrection, achieving our justification. Christ represented us in his resurrection, achieving our justification. And so I just want to reflect now on a couple points of the, of the joys and the benefits of our justification, of the joys and the benefits of our justification. The first is this, is that we have peace with God that our sins are not counted against us. Having been justified, Paul says in the verse that immediately follows, Romans 5, verse 1, having, since we have been justified by faith, we have that verdict from God that we are not condemned, but we are seen as righteous in his courtroom, righteous in his judgment. We have peace with God. And why does that matter? Because we're talking about a God who is indignant with sin. A God who is so good and so righteous and so morally upright that he is not indifferent in one ounce to evil. That is not a God we want to stand before when it comes to the fact that we are ourselves evil and sinful. And and so if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus, we would plead with you. You need to be justified. You are going to stand before God someday and he will judge you and he will judge you righteously. He's a good God who judges righteously all the time. He does not let any sin go unpunished. How are you going to stand before one who in his holiness is indignant with your sin? But in Christ, Paul says, having been justified by faith, praise God, believer, we have peace with this God. This God is reconciled to us. We are now friends with a immeasurably holy God. His resurrection, Christ's resurrection, is a testimony. It's, it is his justification, and it shows us, his resurrection then shows us, that God's judgment has been exhausted. It is impossible for God to condemn those in Christ because the sentence has been fully executed, annulled, and justice achieved. Christ went through this journey of death and condemnation to justification for us so that we wouldn't have to. We experience it and it is considered ours in him. We're considered as having passed through that final judgment already from condemnation to justification. Why? On account of our union with Christ. Secondly, we have all of the blessings 
of the of the covenants as ours. This context in Romans 4 is a, is a context that deals with the fact that, that the, the promises of the covenant covenants are for all who have faith in Christ, all who are justified. And so having been justified, we, have the, we enter into this covenant relationship with God with all of the redemptive blessings that God is pouring out on us. Justification, being declared righteous, is our entry point. It is our ticket our entrance into the kingdom. Having been cleared of our guilt, we are now not only cleared of our guilt, but we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. We are made citizens in his kingdom. And I, I just, I just want to encourage you, as, as Jesus says, he encourages his people in Luke chapter 12. He says, don't be, don't be anxious, believer. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Our God, our God, our Father, he loves, he wants to give us the kingdom. He wants to share these blessings, these promises with us. And as someone who has justified us now, he includes us in that kingdom. He gives us the prom- all the promises of the covenant and he shares that kingdom with us. Thirdly, we have certainty approaching the final judgment. As we have already passed through that judgment in Christ, this judgment that was that is a is an end time judgment that is sort of by wormhole, by time warp, plopped into the mi- middle of history. And as we are joined to Christ, we already in the present, already not yet, have gone through that final judgment, even as we live now before it. And that means that we can have certainty as we approach the final judgment. The final judgment for the believer is not something where we wonder, well, what will my verdict be? Will God condemn me or will he declare me righteous? We don't wonder that because God has already given the judgment in Jesus. We can have confidence and we can have assurance heading into the final judgment of a holy and righteous God. That is an incredible privilege to just ease our soul and praise God that I can have certainty about the outcome of my judgment, not because of me, but because I am in Jesus and I have already passed through that judgment in him. And then lastly here, justification is based on Christ and not on us. Justification is based on Christ and not on us. Our justification is one by Christ. It's not something that we have achieved. As Paul has already told us, God is justifying the ungodly. It's not because we were godly that God justifies us. He says it's given to those who do not work, but those who trust. Trust is the opposite of working. It's it's resting on what God has said and what God has done. It's by faith. It's not of the law. And this means that our justification is not dependent on our fluctuating imperfect performance. It is rather secured in the finished work of Christ. And because our justification does not depend on our performance, it's therefore not something that our lack of performance or our sin can ever reverse. God can no more reverse your justification going back and condemning you than he can go back and undo Jesus' resurrection. The empty tomb is that thing which absolutely thoroughly, for all time, without question, or even an ounce of uncertainty, guarantees our acceptance and justification before the Father, period. 
And so justifying faith is this. Justifying faith is a faith that rests on Jesus. It does not rest on ourselves even in the slightest. Are we, are we trusting in anything in ourselves, any bit of our performance, even in the slightest? That is not justifying faith, but it is to say it is not about me, but it's about what Christ has done in his cross and resurrection, and it is secure there, not secured in my fluctuating performance. Believing, justifying faith is believing God's promise despite what we know is true about ourselves. Just as Abraham believed God's promise despite what he knew of himself, that, that he didn't have a kid. So how could the promise be fulfilled to his offspring? How could he even have offspring? That Abraham was incredibly old and so was his wife. How would God fulfill these things? And yet Abraham, it says, believed God nonetheless. And so we too, we believe God's word. Justifying faith is nothing more than simply believing what God has said, that he saves sinners despite what we know is true about ourselves, that God is going to justify the ungodly despite the fact that we know we do not deserve to be justified, despite the fact that we know in, our, in and of ourselves we are not just, but we are wicked. The Christian is someone who says, yes, I am vile, I have sinned, and I'm still a sinner. But nonetheless, despite of all that, I believe that I stand righteous before God. Why? Because he doesn't look, the Christian doesn't look at himself, but he looks at Christ. And he looks at God's proclamation to us in the resurrection. Faith is a protest against every condemning voice that assails us. It says with Paul, who can bring a charge against God's elect? God has chosen to forgive us. God says that I'm righteous. This isn't something audacious from my standpoint that I'm just proclaiming myself righteous, but God himself says it. Justifying faith is, is a faith that, based on Christ, then defies the charge of condemnation. It's a faith that stands before God, God's judgment and no longer fears. And so when tempted with guilt, when Satan tries to assail and condemn us, we say, yes, I agree with you. I'm a sinner and I deserve God's wrath. I deserve to be condemned and damned for all eternity. You got me. It's true. But we throw those charges in the grave with Jesus where they belong. And believer, here's the thing. We, a lot of us know this theoretically. We know, we, we can articulate this. We can say we believe it. But sometimes we struggle deep down to actually embody this in our own lived experience. When we, when we face guilt over our failings, our natural impulse oftentimes is to run to our performance as a way to silence our guilt or feel good about ourselves before God. But, but our experience doing this only proves the futility of these attempts, right? Because one, we can never remove our past wrongs. Our renewed efforts are never good enough. And also, we, even as we try, no matter how hard we try, no matter our best intentions, we inevitably fail. And when we do this, we're saying functionally that I am not believing the gospel right now. I am not believing what the gospel says is true about me. The actual biblical gospel appropriate thing to do, though, is this. Is when we sin, we confess it in faith. We trust in Christ for our justification before the Father, and we receive it with assurance, believing his promise that our sins are truly dealt with and there is no more condemnation.
In other words, we dare to actually believe the gospel. As audacious and as scandalous as it is that condemnable sinners are counted righteous before God because God himself says so. Amen. And as we move now to the Lord's Supper where we celebrate this reality, as we think about the Lord's Supper, Jesus himself, when he instituted this, said that I want you to practice this until he comes. Jesus says, practice the Lord's Supper. Remember my death until I come. What does that assume? That assumes that Jesus will raise from the dead. So even as he gives us a a, a meal to celebrate his death, there's the assumption in it. This death is one that will lead to resurrection. This death is one of conquering. And as Jesus talks about his death, he says that this blood is my blood of the new covenant. And what do we know about the new covenant, believer? We know in the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 that part of that promise, as Jeremiah says, or as God says through the prophet Jeremiah, is that I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And so as we think about the Lord's Supper and hopefully you've been able to, you're able to grab bread and, and some form of juice here. As we think about this, this supper is a, is a pictured promise from God of that new covenant promise to us that was achieved in, in the cross and resurrection, two sides of the same coin, our sin dealt with and our justification achieved. This is what God wants to tell us this morning as he gives us this promise. You're forgiven. Your iniquity is dealt with in Christ, and God does not remember our sin. Christian, live in the beauty of the gospel. Dare to believe the gospel this week. Yes, strive to live differently, strive to live righteously, but but the appropriate response is never to try to perform our way into acceptance with God, but to simply confess our sin and receive the forgiveness that Christ offers us.